Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, the British monarchy and the First World War. What was happening in Ireland and the world 100 years ago? An art story about dealers of old masters, champions of modern art and victims of Nazi plunder. And then we'll end the show by exploring the links between British romanticism and religion. Last week we looked at Irish periodicals and magazines in the 20th century, the songs of an Irish traditional singer, death threats in late 19th century Ireland, Irish lives in America and the legacies of the Magdalen Laundries. And if you want to listen back to this or any of our older shows, just go to our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with the British monarchy and the First World War. A new groundbreaking history of the British monarchy and the First World War explores how the conflict changed British cultural attitudes to the monarchy. The book is called For King and Country, The British Monarchy and the First World War. It's published in hardback by Cambridge University Press. The author is Heather Jones, who has been on Talking History many times, including going all the way back to uh, the start of the programme. And uh, Heather, welcome back. And also congratulations on the new book and congratulations on the award. Thank you very much, Jess. It's just won the Tomlinson Prize for the best book in English on the First World War uh, for 2021. So I'm really pleased about that. Um, and it's great to be back on the show. It's a real pleasure. Uh, it's so many years have flown by so quickly. So let's talk about the British monarchy during the First World War and how it changed. And I suppose it changed in some very uh, big and obvious ways, including you know taking on the, 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 the Windsor name and identity. But uh, it changed in, in, in more subtle ways as well. And as you show, it emerged in a stronger position at the end of the First World War because of some of these changes. Yes, I mean, one of the reasons I did the book was I was a bit, a bit tired of kind of people seeing monarchism as this static thing in British society that had always been there and always been the same. It's actually something that evolves a lot across history, and it's very different in World War I um, to how it is in other time periods. The monarchy really becomes romanticized with the outbreak of the war. That's why we get the term that, that this is a war for king and country. The king part of that really mattered in 1914. People thought they were going to die for their monarch, and they believed very much in in, in the monarchy, when they said uh, the king, they would say the king, God bless them, in parts of London. You know, it's almost a sacralized idea of the monarch. Um, and as the war goes on, um, the monarch at the time, George V, is very quick to realize that the monarchy must be seen as sharing the people's suffering. He's quicker to realize that than some of the politicians. And so he sort of morphs into this war leader, wearing uniform, visiting the war wounded, uh, visiting the battlefields, uh, visiting the war factories and munitions workers. and really being aware of, of, of what's going on with working classes. And, and particularly at, by the end of the war, the monarchy is really strengthened by this and, and by its role in commemorating the war dead. And that actually gives it a new future. Um, because as many monarchies are falling all across Europe, the British monarchy has managed to sort of associate itself with honouring the war dead, with, with sort of uh, channeling the grief of the population and of the masses of people who had fought people in the war it becomes a kind of symbol of that. And, and, they, and, and it's very present at the unveiling of war memorials, at the ceremony of the burial of the unknown soldier in, in Westminster Abbey. It really manages to, to use commemoration as a way to kind of give it a new raison d'etre at, for, for the 20th century. And do you think the monarchy is doing this because it's important for uh, morale on the home front and that they know it will help with war recruitment and how, how people come to terms with the, the terrible losses? Or is there an element of self-interest and self-protection involved as well when they know that maybe perhaps their status might be challenged? 
I think it's a mixture of reasons. I think there's definitely self-interest. There's also fear. Uh, when the Russian Revolution breaks out in 1917, obviously two revolutions in Russia in that year. Uh, the first one, the revolution that makes Russia into a, a, a liberal democracy temporarily with provisional government, that's a huge shock. And obviously then the Bolshevik Revolution on top of that, a really alarmed British elite at uh, the monarchy starts fearing that they may themselves be victims of, of, of a revolution. They're very frightened by what happens to the Tsar. There's definitely self-interest in this. Um, but there's also kind of a moral understanding of what monarchy is. The royal couple themselves believe in many ways their own monarchist propaganda. The king believes he has been chosen by God for this role. He's a very pious man, George V. Um, he's a very uh, close relationship with the Archbishop of Canterbury. And so there's actually a very strong sense that they, they really believe they've been chosen to lead the British people through this time of trial. And a lot of the, the speeches that, that George V makes or his statements that he issues to the public refer to him invoking God's, God's blessings on the people in this time of crisis. So I think it's a mixture of, of self-interest, of, a, of, of, of feeling fear, of knowing that the monarchy may not survive if they don't act in a way that the people find acceptable. But it's also a sense of themselves um, actually really believing in monarchy and believing in this sort of role as well. And they have a view of monarchy that, that is quite difficult, I think, for us nowadays to really understand. It, it's very laced with a, a kind of sense of, 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 of divine intercession in the face of nations. There is very definitely a threat to the monarchy and to the principle of monarchy in Ireland during this period. And we see it with the 1916 rising and we see it with the attempts to to create an independent Irish Republic. But uh, although there have been suggestions in the past that there is a similar Republican threat in in Britain, your work shows that that's probably been overstated. Yes, I think as an Irish person living in Britain, I became also quite cynical about some of the works that were claiming there was a risk of revolution in Britain in 1917 and 1918 and that really, you know, there was a wave of anti-monarchism and the monarchy was in danger. I mean, I was looking at this from two perspectives, really, from what happens in Ireland where you actually see real republicanism and you see what it looks like, statues being pulled down, a complete change of language, a reference to the Republican citizen and, 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 a, very, you know, and a very strong anti-monarchist movement. There was nothing of the sort in Britain comparable. Monarch and his, his family could travel virtually without any security through the streets of London. I mean, this was not a revolutionary situation in Britain. But the other perspective I brought to this was having studied the history of continental Europe. It's virtually unimaginable to think of the Kaiser going to visit a munitions factory. Um, and to put this in context, when there is a, an outbreak of strikes in Scotland um, at, during the war and in the north of England, the cabinet are very worried about these strikes in munitions factories and in shipyards. And they know Lloyd George can't go there. He is so unpopular. But they send the king and queen. So this is not a revolutionary situation towards the monarchy. This is actually a situation where the monarch is more popular than the prime minister. And the king and queen go, and the king actually speaks to the militant strikers. He speaks to their leaders one-to-one. I mean, again, in terms of security, it's difficult to imagine something like that happening on the continent in Russia or in Germany. And certainly the Irish revolutionary context, too, shows what a real Republican revolution and anti-monarchism looks like, a real threat would look like. We don't really see that in Britain. So, yes, the book really does challenge the assumptions of previous historians who just looked at Britain without thinking about these other contexts for what were going on at the time. And, yes, the, the, the attitude to the monarchy changes during the war, but it's really not changing in anything that we would recognize as a radical or republican way. It's changing in terms of what people expect of monarch, they expect the monarch to reach out to them in, in their hour of difficulty and of war suffering. 
And we see very interesting gender roles being taken by the king and queen as well. And it's it's interesting to look at the role that the king takes as the kind of the father figure, perhaps, of the nation. The queen is maybe the mother figure. And then you even have interesting things like uh, Princess Mary Christmas chocolates uh, become popular. Yes, they really take on this kind of familial role. And, and what they're trying to do is present themselves as a family that understands what other families were going through. So the Prince of Wales uh, goes to serve... At initially with the, with the staff at the front, but he actually pushes himself into quite dangerous situations so that he is seen to be under shell fire like the other uh, men of the country. And Princess Mary sets up this, this operation to deliver Christmas chocolates as a kind of gift from the royal family, from one family to, 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 to another. From, from they, they, they sort of try to, try to use the chocolates to symbolise a kind of uh, care package from the royals to every single soldier or sailor serving uh, during the war. They only get to do that once because the army actually finds this to be a very cumbersome episode, very different, difficult logistically to deliver chocolates to every single uh, a member of the armed forces. And so this only happens once. But again, the, the gesture is there and some soldiers claim that the tin that the chocolates were in actually saves their life when it's hit by a bullet and the bullet doesn't actually hit them, it hits the, the metal tin. Um, and so again, you get this sense of kind of the, the symbolism of monarchy through the symbolism of the family reaching out to, to, the, to, the, to the service personnel. And then Queen Mary herself uh, very much tries to position herself as a kind of mother of both nation and the empire uh, during the war and, and goes to visit war hospitals uh, both in Britain and actually also um, in, in France. She visits France once during the war as well. And after war, um, Princess Mary also goes over and visits women who've been involved as drivers or as, as nurses at the, front, at the front during the war. So there is this kind of mobilisation of the royals as a family trying to symbolise the mobilisation of ordinary families and very gendered in terms of how that mobilisation operates. The women doing caring roles, uh, supporting roles, the men uh, being soldiers in uniform serving. Uh, and the second son of the king, Prince Albert, um, the later George VI, and he serves uh, in the Battle of Jutland. So he's actually at risk of being killed in that battle because if you're on a ship and it goes down, it doesn't matter who you are. So there's a, there's a very strong effort made, I think, particularly by those around the monarchy, the spin doctors, if you like, at the time, to try and present them as, as going through the war, uh, sharing in the fate of the, of the people of, of, of the country. And you've mentioned the importance of the commemoration of the war, but that stays important when the war is over and it helps the monarchy uh, retain its popularity probably all the way up uh, you showed to the abdication crisis because uh, this is now the monarchy and the symbolism and the identity is now closely tied up with the war. Yes, and I think one of the things in the abdication crisis, it's interesting, Queen Mary actually says to her son in 1936, at the time of the abdication, that people can't understand why when they had to give up a son to die for the country, that you couldn't give up a woman. And so this whole interwar mystique of the monarchy is based around this idea that they understand and will serve the people who have given up so much to preserve the freedom of, of, of the country as it's portrayed at the time. That's the language that's built around what the war has been about. Uh, and so there's a sense of the royals having to serve the war dead. And right through the interwar period, that's what they are doing. That's one of, one of their key roles, is to show honour and respect to the war dead who have died for the king, as it were, who have died for them, as it were. Uh, and so that becomes a really, really key function of the royal family. We see elements of it right through uh, to the present when, when the centenary of World War I happened. Again, it was the royals who were sent out uh, to, to the Battle of the Somme uh, battlefields and to, to commemorate the war. So this, this role of commemorating war dead and, and expressing mourning of ordinary people uh, through honouring the war dead uh, in symbolic ways, such as the king 
serving as the chief mourner at the burial of the unknown soldier, that becomes very important. And that actually serves to sacralize the monarchy. Remember, a lot of the kind of sacred image of monarchy has been very badly tarnished by the Russian Revolution, which makes it possible to imagine a world without monarchy. In 1914, most countries were headed by monarchs in continental Europe. After the war, that is definitely not the case. It's completely reversed. Um, and so honoring the war dead, who are considered sacred because they are you know, fought for the country and tied to the country, that becomes a way then uh, for the monarchy itself to gain back a bit of that honor and sacralization because the war dead are sacred and therefore the monarchy itself kind of renews its own sacred image. It's a very interesting, um, a very interesting and clever move there by the monarchy to put itself in that position. It had always been interested in, 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 in combatants and war dead. That was part of its historic role going right back. Queen Victoria has done some of that. But this is on a completely different scale. The burial of the unknown soldier shows the king really as honouring dead unknown soldier who could have been from anywhere across the British Empire or the British uh, recruitment areas, honouring that man as if he was a member of the royal family. And on the tombstone of the unknown uh, soldier in Westminster Abbey, it says they buried him among the kings. So the idea of, of kind of the, the royal family as treating him as one of their own in a kind of moment, again, using commemoration to kind of give themselves a very clear purpose into the future, it is very, very significant. Well, it's an award-winning new book by one of our best historians. It's called For King and Country, The British Monarchy and the First World War, published in hardback by Cambridge University Press. The author, Heather Jones. And Heather, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Patrick. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History, History on News Talk. Welcome back to Talking History. 1922 was a year of great turbulence and upheaval. The world had just emerged from a war that had killed millions of people and a global pandemic that had ended the lives of tens of millions more. Its events reverberated throughout the rest of the 20th century and still affect us today. And a new book conjures up all of the drama and diversity of this extraordinary year. The book is called 1922 Scenes from a Turbulent Year. It's published in hardback by Old Castle Books. The author is Nick Rennison. And Nick, you're very welcome to the show. Well, thank you for inviting me on. There's a huge amount that you cover in the book. So maybe we should just give our listeners a sense of the diversity to be found within the pages of this, because it's everything from the publication of Ulysses and the Wasteland. It's Ireland becoming a, an independent state. It's the Soviet Union being created. But then there's also sport. There's cinema. Uh, there is uh, prohibition. Uh, it's, it's very much a global story of huge activity. Yes, I mean, I, I wanted it to be as diverse and various as possible, really. I mean, originally, I started off by researching and, and looking mainly into those big changes that, uh, that you, some of which you mentioned, the fact that old empires were coming to an end in 1922 and new regimes were coming into uh, power, like Mussolini's Italy and such like. But the more I researched, the more I sort of came across such a variety of stories and such a, a diversity of stories that I, I wanted to tell and pack more into the book than I'd originally intended to. And I'd also originally intended to make it a sort of consecutive narrative, whereas in the end what I've done is divide the book into monthly sections and pick half a dozen or more stories from each of those months in order to show the variety that there is. So I began by looking at the politics and in the end I, I was getting 
all sorts. I was getting sport, I was getting film, I was getting literature, obviously, mentioned Ulysses and the Wasteland. Uh, there's also Scott Fitzgerald who was publishing one of his early books at the time, and he was obviously a, a major figure in America at the time and a representative almost of that period of, of the jazz age. So also jazz, of course, I, I managed to get in a certain amount about music and jazz and Louis Armstrong's um, journey from um New Orleans to Chicago, which some people say was the most important event in the history of jazz. So, yes, I just wanted to, as I say, get as many. And after thinking that it would be one thing, the book became something else. And I'm, I'm pleased that it, it did so in a way, because it enabled me to look into and research all sorts of uh, interesting stories that I probably otherwise wouldn't have done. It was very much a year of firsts. And I wonder, do you think people living through 1922 uh, thought it was a significant year or was it only maybe in later years that they realised the importance of, you know, the Soviet Union being created or Italy becoming a fascist state under Mussolini or the first vampire movie being released in Berlin? Was it, or or as you say, these these new... uh, uh, um, you know, postmodernist works or modernist works, and was it perhaps was their significance recognised at the time? Um, I, I think probably not. Actually, I think it's with the you know, hindsight of history that we're able to see, because when, for instance, Mussolini came to power in Italy, there were there was no necessary indication that that this was going to involve the rise of other fascist powers in the decade to come. And, and you know, Hitler at the time in 1922 was a very obscure demagogue in Munich beer halls. So th- there was no indication there. And I think with other things as well, there probably wasn't. It is only with hindsight that you can be sure that certain things were pivotal and important. I mean, a small example of that would be the fact that in 1922, a young animator created his own company for the first time in Kansas City and started to make cartoons. That animator was Walt Disney. Now, nobody at the time, even amongst Walt's closest friends, would have thought that this was a pivotal moment in the history of cinema. But obviously, in retrospect... It certainly was, because you could argue that that was one of, in a strange way, that was one of the most important events of the year, considering the way in which Disney shapes or has shaped the cultural history of the world in some you know, significant way. So, yes, it's, it is, it's more in retrospect. I think at the time, certain individuals would realise that they'd done major significant things. I mean, I'm sure Joyce was aware when his uh, novel was published in February on his, for the first time, when Ulysses was published for the first time on his birthday in February, on his 40th birthday in February. I'm sure he was aware of the significance of what he was doing and what he had done and of his achievements. And I think probably to some extent, Elliot would have been with, when he published The Wasteland, in a magazine that he established in October of that year. 
But for most people, I, I don't necessarily think that they would have seen the effects that or predicted the effects of events that they were involved in. Some of the stories are very quirky and quite remarkable, but perhaps haven't been remembered through the years. And I'm thinking of the Straw Hat Riots in New York, which, as mad as the title suggests, riots over uh, hats that people were wearing and whether they were breaching the rules of fashion. Yes, I know. It is extraordinary. And when I... When I first came across that story, I could scarcely believe it. I had to make, you know, lots of checks and and look at a lot of different sources to be sure that it was actually the case. But what happened was that in New York, in it was a kind of tradition that in September, men took off their straw hats and they replaced them with felt hats. And there was a kind of uh, unspoken tradition that if if people didn't after that time then you were allowed to kind of go up and knock the hats off and make sure that they were wearing the right headgear but on this occasion in New York it, it got out of hand that uh, a group of lads made the severe mistake of trying to knock the hats off a group of dockers who were you know as you can imagine not particularly chuffed by the idea and they went berserk and a riot broke out and the riot lasted for several days, which, and, and you know, people, it became quite a serious incident. Police were involved and some of the streets of New York became running battles. It's, it is just an extraordinary story. And when I first saw that and just happened whilst I was reading something else to see a reference to this straw hat riot, I thought, what on earth can that be? And uh, I was very pleased when I went further and found what a strange story it was. You also get a great insight into events in Hollywood and uh, it's a time of scandals as well as new cinematic developments. Yes, there was. I mean, cinematic developments were taking place. I mean, you mentioned earlier in Germany, there were um, the Nosferatu, which is the first vampire film was, was, was made, which considering the number of vampire films that are out now, that may or may not be a good thing. But anyway, yes, there was uh, Hollywood was going through a series of scandals. There was, in February of that year, there was uh, a famous director called William Desmond Taylor was uh, found murdered uh, and several well-known female stars with whom he was connected were suspected of of involvement in the killing and nothing has ever been proved and in fact nobody has has definitively proved who did kill who did murder uh, William Desmond Taylor those scandals shaped the way in which American films were made for decades to come in an indirect way Well, there's lots more stories like that in the book. It's a wonderful exploration of the turbulence and upheaval of the year 1922. The book is called 1922 Scenes from a Turbulent Year, published in hardback by Old Castle Books. The author, Nick Renison. And Nick, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much indeed. Talking History History. on News Talk. Since the late 1990s, the fate of Nazi stolen art has become a cause celeb. A new book turns the story on its head by revealing how certain Jewish outsiders came to acquire so many old and modern masterpieces in the first place and what this reveals about Jews, art and modernity. 
The book is called Belonging and Betrayal, How Jews Made the Art World Modern. It's published in hardback by Brandeis University Press. The author is Charles Delheim. And Charles, you're very welcome to the show tonight. It's very nice to be here. It's also an appropriate moment. I have just been rereading Richard Elman's biography of James Joyce for the first time since I was in college. So in a very Irish mood of sorts. Wonderful. Well, we are delighted to be able to join you then in this uh, centenary year. Can you tell us about the approach in the book? Because it is an extraordinary story and it even has that, you know, wonderful first whole part of the book where you talk about the old masters and about how the old masters got new masters and, uh, and really what this says about, well, I suppose about art and I suppose about how... Um, really we're getting great insight into these, as you say, how Jewish outsiders uh, really became so significant in the art world. Yeah, absolutely. So what I tried to do in the book, as you said in the opening, was to turn the story of Nazi stolen art on its head by looking at the role of Jewish outsiders in culture. So I was interested in this historical problem of how did outsiders against all odds, come to play so significant a role um, in the art world. And what interested me about it was that traditionally art was at the symbolic center of European high culture. It was the province of monarchs, of nobles, of churchmen. And Jews were on the margins. They were the proverbial people of the book, uh, focused on sacred literary texts rather than on visual icons, per se. And this begins to change both because of individual efforts, but also because of large-scale historical forces, the first of which was the gradual movement of the arts from royal courts to metropolitan centers, whether it was Dublin or Edinburgh or London or Paris. Um, The second was the emancipation of Jews, which took place at different times and different rates in different parts of Europe. And emancipation gave Jews political and legal equality, at least in principle. But it didn't give them um, respectability. It didn't give them a, um, a role in the larger society. And art is one of a number of different avenues which Jews use um, as a means of acculturation, as a source of status, um, in the most general sense, as a way into the wider society. And part one begins with the extraordinary story of Nathan Wildenstein. Nathan um, came from a small village in Alsace. He's born around the mid-19th century. He is the grandson and son of horse dealers. Uh, They were pretty traditional Jews, not necessarily pious, but going to synagogue, keeping kosher, um, observing the holidays. Uh, Nathan had a very rudimentary education and certainly no access at all to art. And what changes everything is the Franco-Prussian War, which sends him like many other um, Alsatian Jews and non-Jews from their native province to France. And Nathan goes to seek his fortune. He erases his past, 
cuts off ties with his family and after a stint in the army works as a horse dealer, a tailor's assistant, a textile merchant. And one day a client comes to him and asks if he can sell um, a picture for her. And Nathan was the sort of man who had the confidence that he could sell anything good to anyone. And he said, absolutely, except he knew absolutely nothing about art. This didn't deter him. He troops up to Paris, spends 10 days among what he calls the heavenly delights of the Louvre, and determines one way or another that the picture was a work from the school of Van Dyck. And this is a kind of astonishing moment because um, 10 days or no 10 days, a man with no artistic education, no artistic exposure, um, but was must have been imbued with not only a, an astonishing eye, but also, um, though it's far removed from art dealing as you can get, as a horse dealer, you have to understand something about form and style and structure. And this is the very modest beginning of Nathan's road to becoming an art dealer. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is, He's utterly self-taught in art. He um, learns about art through experience, museum after museum, gallery after gallery, picture after picture, um, decorative object after decorative object. And within two decades or so, he's become such an expert on French art, and in particular on 18th century French art, that the professors of the Louvre came to Nathan Wildenstein, um, former horse dealer to authenticate their pictures. And that's just one of many stories. Um, another part of this is he chooses a partner, another Alsatian Jew, a man named Ernest Gampel, um, a little less rough than Nathan, somewhat better educated, and um, a man who had been a former commodities broker. And one of the interesting things that I found in the book is the ways in which um, the founders of these galleries, self-taught and self-made, uh, moved from um, the rather ordinary businesses in which they were involved, uh, successfully or not, into the rarefied world of art dealing. And they applied the skills, contacts, and habits that they had um, developed in these trades. And one of the things Gampel and Wildenstein do together, um, really because of Gampel's command of English, was they open a gallery in the United States, in New York in 1901. And therefore, they have access to trade on both sides of the Atlantic. That's one story among many. And a fascinating part of the story is that these self-taught and self-made art dealers take an interest in modern art and they champion it, they commission it, they, they, they deal it. And uh, at a time when, you know, in a later period with the Nazis are denouncing modern art as degenerate, uh, the support for modern art really is crucial in this period. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Patrick. One of the things which is interesting about this is that for better or worse, or should I say for better and worse, Jews have been identified with modernism. And for the Nazis, this was one of many gripes, a very mild word they had against Jews. They equated um, 
um, to, to, to generate modern art, degenerate art with um, as modern art and a Jewish art and art to kunst. And what's interesting is how Jews get started. So not all Jews liked modern art, not all Jews liked old masters. And in that regard, they were probably no different than the rest of what um, Ibsen memorably called the compact majority. But there are a number of factors which made it possible and appealing for Jews to enter the world of modern art. The first of which is timing. Um, the migration of Jews from Eastern Europe and Russia to Central Europe and Western Europe, and in particular to capital cities, was the foundation of all of this, because modernism, as we know, um, like most new forms of art, was preeminently urban, metropolitan. So if Jewish migration had taken place, say, a century later, 50 years before, um, Jews would have probably played a negligible role in the history of modern art. Um, the migration of Jews to Western Europe coincided with the birth of modern art. So timing matters, location matters. But the second thing is that if you look at the kind of enterprises, economic, cultural, artistic, um, intellectual, in which Jews um, became involved, in which they um, tended to do reasonably well for themselves, they all have a certain kind of pattern. Um, rapidly expanding businesses in which there were ample opportunities for growth, uh, in which there were relatively low barriers to entry, in which professional hierarchies had not yet gelled, and therefore discrimination, while not absent, was not as strong as it was in fields that were entrenched. And that's true of Jews entering theoretical physics because experimental physics was not really open to them as it is to Jews entering modern art. As outsiders, Jews had much less attachment for obvious reasons to the established institutions, the academies of fine art, the salon. Um, they had no particular reason to defend them, though some were um, well inclined um, to the art that was produced there and exhibited there. So there's the, the, um, the fact that as newcomers, they are more open to different forms of aesthetic experimentation. And again, you know, this isn't everybody, uh, it's some people. And a final question, Charles. When you look at the story, it's, it's a story of, of Nazi attempts to, to cleanse the art world of any Jewish influence, but it's also a story of survival and it's also a story of, of eminent art dealers and collectors helping save works by, by having them go from Europe to the United States and so on. So there's, there, there's different dimensions to the story. There are indeed. You know, on the one hand, there are um, Jewish dealers and collectors who lose everything, and some who had been fortunate and prudent had already sent pictures to America, um, but that was not a simple thing to do. Um, but others, like Paul Rosenberg, had hidden his art in a number of different caches and had taken every precaution before he very reluctantly left um, France through um, Spain and on to Portugal and landed um, um, in September 1940 
in America. And every one of those caches of art were discovered. And um, Paul Rosenberg uh, tried to get his art back. He filed claims during the war. Um, he was more successful than most. And this story of recovery is an ongoing story. Um, if you had asked me 20 years ago how long the battles over restitution would have gone on, I don't think I could have given you an accurate answer. But I also had no idea that these dramas would play out into the present day and beyond. So the story of Nazi stolen art is not a story without end, but its end is not yet in sight. Well, Charles, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. The book is called Belonging and Betrayal, How Jews Made the Art World Modern. It's published in hardback by Brandeis University Press. The author, Charles Delheim, and we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Welcome back to Talking History. A new book provides the first scholarly survey of the connections between literature, religion and intellectual life during the British Romantic period from the 1780s to 1832. The book is called The Cambridge Companion to British Romanticism and Religion. It's published in paperback by Cambridge University Press. The editor is Geoffrey W. Barbeau. And Geoffrey, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I think the key thing really is the title and the fact that it's linking British romanticism and religion, because this is looking at the influence of Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, atheism. And it shows how perhaps the links and the connections are closer than one might think maybe perhaps starting off. Well, that's right. I I think oftentimes when we think of British romantics, of course, there's the great poets, Wordsworth, Coleridge, uh, Blake, Byron, Keats, Shelley. Those are the ones we so often read and think about. And it's easy to fall into a bit of a sense that they're distancing themselves from religious concerns. There's an older thesis that sort of what happened in the British Romantic period was a sort of losing of religion and a kind of secularity. And I think in, in many ways, the essays in this book really bring to light a lot of recent scholarship that's challenging that older thesis. And when we talk about British Romanticism, what exactly do we mean? Is it the kind of writing they are, they're producing or is it the things they are feeling and experiencing? Yes, I mean, this is a great question and it's a bit of a long dialogue. Uh, in one sense, you can say that Romanticism is a kind of mood, right? It is an emphasis on interiority, of intuition, of the individual, or perhaps we might have said the common man, right? Um, nature certainly comes to mind. And those kind of themes certainly are, are significant ones for many of our great writers in that period. But the moment I say in that period, I also signal something else. And that's that chronology. And when we often think of British Romanticism, we're also talking about a time from the late 1780s to the early 1830s. And that sense of chronology matters because in many ways, it opens up a whole range of thinkers, not all of whom are of one mind on the mood, but belong in a sense to a common conversation. And those conversations, maybe even, those connections between different individuals and communities really pop out, I think, as you start to look at the religious elements and what's holding together many different communities in this period. 
And again, that brings us to some very interesting stuff in the second part, part two, where you look at the different types of literary forms, because perhaps we're, we're more inclined to think of the romantic poets, Shelley and Byron and Wordsworth. But actually, there are many other different literary forms that are prominent at this time, including dramas, novels, even sermons and lectures. That's right. I mean, the the diversity of literary forms is a big part of the period, and certainly it's a, a strength, I think, in the book. In fact, we could have filled an entire volume just looking at all of the different forms because there's so much happening. As you mentioned with drama, just to take one for a moment, I mean, religion is a big part of the drama of the period. Now, often caricatured, often seen in sort of stereotypical forms. And yet you can see and hear through the drama of the times as theater going was such an important part of the period. You can see how religious elements are playing into that. The novels are doing this too. There are elements of piety. There is religion and irreligion. There's an effort to inculcate virtue and religious norms through novels. Uh, on and on and on we could go. I mean, it's a really diverse and vibrant period for these different forms. And there are also these really important links between, say, literature and other kinds of intellectual life in the period that science features prominently, politics does. Well, perhaps politics, we might expect that given what we know of uh, some of the great romantics, but we wouldn't perhaps expect to see philosophy and science, music and painting. You know, it's interesting because oftentimes when we think about, let's just use education as a model, we might study in a particular subject and we tend to segment different disciplines uh, very sharply. But in this period, they aren't really so inclined. Anyone who picks up Blake knows that there is poetry there. They know that there's uh, visual arts, right? There's there's etchings and so forth, but also there are references to science. There are philosophical concepts, as you mentioned. There's there's politics there, and all of that is sort of kind of always connected, and its richness, I think, actually requires of our readers of that period to look into these different. Uh, aspects of what's happening. And and the essays in the volume, I think, really tackle this with expert care. I, I think of, for example, there's an essay on painting by Martin Myrone, and it's a wonderful example of how oftentimes one might say, well, there's no really good religious art or painting in this period. And he really debunks this and suggests, actually, it's oftentimes because we've simply ignored it and haven't looked closely enough at what is there. And when we do, we discover a richness that I think actually is quite startling. Well, given how rich all of these different uh, forms were and the connections were so deep and meaningful, why did the Romantic period come to an end then in the 1830s? Why didn't endure for, for decades longer? Well, again, this is uh, something of an artificial distinction, isn't it? I mean, when we look back at time periods, we do so for various political circumstances, various historical events, and those create nice lines of demarcation. But if we think about mood and time period together, then certainly it is the case that there are authors, there are those who are doing work even after the early 1830s that many would say still reflects that romantic spirit. 
One way to think of this, for example, would be generational in the sense of family links, which is a great area of study right now. I do a lot of work, for example, on Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and many are looking at his own children as extensions of that romantic mood. Someone like Sarah Coleridge would be a great example of this, or Hartley Coleridge. But there are others. And if you look to Jewish writings, for example, there is a rich literary inheritance that occurs right after what we would consider the line of that end of the romantic period, but still very much participating in that romantic mood. And so in very real senses, we would say they are romantic authors, though they extend into what we might think of as the Victorian period. Excellent. And Jeffrey, finally, what would you see as their great legacy in terms of not just literature, but beyond? Well, certainly I would say this. Anyone who hopes to understand the controversies of the 19th century moving into the 20th century, we often think about faith and doubt and science and controversies in the Victorian period. But to understand that properly, you really have to go back to the early 19th century. That's when so much of the work is being done that leads to the kind of fissures, the breaks of that later time. Those controversies are extensions in many ways of the early 19th century and the late 18th century. And that legacy in many ways continues on to this day. So much of what is happening in our own times, we might say, reflects that early period. And for me, one of the things that stands out when we think about the religious context and that religious element is really the rise of pluralism. And here I would go back to that earlier thesis, which still has great sway, this idea of the romantic poets and others secularizing in their distancing from the established church. But perhaps instead of secularizing, what we might say is that there is a burgeoning sense of religious pluralism as contact with Islamic sources, as contact with Hindu philosophy, as contact with an increasingly vibrant Jewish community in and around London. As these sources are percolating and influencing the, the literature of the times, really what's not happening is secularization as that plurality of religious beliefs. And what's taking place then, I think actually, brings that richness out in the literature. So rather than overlooking the religious, we ought to actually pay greater attention to it. And that legacy continues to this day, as we still face questions of pluralism, tolerance, mutuality. What does it mean to be a community with different beliefs and practices? These are vibrant questions, and they face them in the Romantic period. Their literature reflects that. And we would, I think, do well to look at their own example of how they thought about those issues. Well, a wonderfully thought-provoking note on which to end our discussion. The book is called The Cambridge Companion to British Romanticism and Religion. It's published in paperback by Cambridge University Press. The editor is Geoffrey Barbeau. And Geoffrey, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Marisa Sullivan, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we'll be looking at the life and afterlife of Tutankhamun, the most famous of the Egyptian pharaohs, and we'll be exploring his curse and his remarkable legacy. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night.